Hey, leader, and welcome to episode number 323 of the L3 Leadership Podcast, where we are obsessed with helping you grow to your maximum potential and to maximize the impact of your leadership. My name is Doug Smith, and I am your host, and today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Baratong Advisors. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope that you enjoy our content and become a subscriber. Know that you can also watch all of our episodes over on our YouTube channel, so make sure you're subscribed there as well. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and we've impacted your life, it would mean the world to me if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. That really does help us to grow our audience and reach more leaders. So thank you in advance for that. Well, get ready to be inspired. In today's episode, you're about to hear my conversation with John O'Leary. If you've never heard of John, let me tell you a little bit about him. He has an incredible story. In 1987, John was a curious nine-year-old boy. When playing with fire and gasoline, John created a massive explosion in his home and was burned on 100% of his body. He was given less than a 1% chance to live. His epic story of survival was first showcased in his parents' book, Overwhelming Odds, in 2006. Originally, they printed 200 copies for friends and family, and now his parents have sold over 60,000 copies of that book. And it was that book that first invited John to embrace his miraculous recovery and share it with the world. John now inspires over 50,000 people at 100-plus events each year. He speaks to companies and organizations across industries such as sales, health care, safety, marketing, finance, faith, education, and insurance. And he's consistently described as one of the best speakers we've ever had. He receives nearly 100% of his engagements from referrals. His schedule is a testament to the power of his message and who he is as an individual. His Emotional storytelling, unexpected humor, and authenticity make each of his presentations truly transformational. His first book, On Fire, The Seven Choices to Ignite a Radically Inspired Life, was an instant number one national bestseller, selling over 200,000 copies and being translated into 12 languages. John's Live Inspired podcast is a top-rated Apple podcast and has more than 2 million downloads. And his second book, In Awe, Rediscover Your Childlike Wonder, came out in May of 2020. And John considers his greatest success to be his marriage to his wife, Beth, their four children, and his relationships with friends and family. And I love this conversation. John inspired me and fired me up. And you're going to hear John not only share his story, some of the lessons that he learned along the way. And of course, I'll take him through the lightning round as well. So you're going to love this episode. But before we dive in, just a few announcements. This episode of the L3 Leadership Podcast is sponsored by Baratung Advisors. The financial advisors at Baratung Advisors help educate and empower clients to make informed financial decisions. You can find out how Baratung Advisors can help you develop a customized financial plan for your financial future by visiting their website at baratungadvisors.com. That's B-E-R-A-T-U-N-G advisors.com. Securities and investment products and services offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA and SIPC. Baritung Advisors, LPL Financial, and L3 Leadership are separate entities. I also want to thank our sponsor, Henny Jewelers. They're a jeweler owned by my friend and mentor, John Henny. My wife, Laura, and I got our engagement and wedding rings at Henny Jewelers and had a wonderful experience. And not only do they have great jewelry, but they also invest in people. In fact, for every couple that comes into their store and gets engaged, they give them a book to help them prepare for marriage, and we just love that. So if you're in need of a good jeweler, check out hennyjewelers.com. And with all that being said, let's dive right in. Here's my conversation with John O. Well, hey, John O'Leary, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time to do this. And I just want to dive right into your story. Uh, I feel like your story has gone around the world. And so you had a very interesting or very challenging experience when you were nine years old. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, even the the way you framed that, like traveling around the world, it it would have been the last thing in the world Hmm. that I would have expected for this story. Because it's the one thing I hoped that would not come out of the story. Maybe we can talk about that later on. But the story you're referencing was at age nine, I witnessed kids in my neighborhood playing with fire and gasoline. So I grew up in the Midwest in St. Louis, Missouri, and little boys out here, at least, maybe things are different in Pittsburgh, but out here, little boys are crazy, man. So they're playing with fire, they're playing with gasoline. And I assumed if these kids could do it, so could I. So my father's at work on a Saturday morning. I walk into their house, mom and dad's, walk into the garage come over to a can of gasoline and try to model what I'd seen none about a week earlier. And Doug, as I'm, as I'm tipping this can of gasoline, five gallons toward a piece of paper that's on fire. I remember waiting for the liquid to come out. And before that happens, the fumes inhaled 
my little flame into the container and created this massive explosion. Mm. It splits the metal can into picks the child up and then launches me 20 feet against the far side of the garage. So that's, that's the inflection point, man. That's the very beginning of our story. Yeah. And so, so you're launched 20 feet. What happened? What happened next? Yeah. So I'm in the garage. I'm on fire. I'm covered in gasoline. And when I came to everything around the garage was on fire as well. So it's almost like a movie. You see flames, but it's hard to even identify the fact that like it's your life, like you're on fire. And so what, what happened was I was literally, if pardon the pun, blown away, had no idea really what had happened. And I just remember knowing I was in trouble. Uh, you know, like when you fall off a bike and you, you know it hurts, you're not even sure where it hurts. You just know it's like, oh, something happened here. So I ran on fire through the flames, ran back into my mom and dad's house, ran through the kitchen, the family room and stood on top of this rug. And I rarely share this story, but I think it's relevant uh, for many of your listeners. You know, I should have stopped and dropped and rolled, but I was so freaked out. I just kept running, eventually stood on top of this rug, screaming for a hero, praying for a savior. I'll take anybody. Hmm. And I see my brother, Jim, who was 17. He's the oldest in our family. He was a junior in high school. He'd never done anything kind for me in my entire life. And he's the last guy who I thought that day would be my hero. And yet he's the one who had been anointed, man. He's the one who received the call. And I think there's a lesson somewhere tucked in there for all of us if we pay attention to it. What he does that day is he comes down the steps a little bit farther, runs past me, he told me later on that the flames were leaping three feet off of my body in all directions. So it's like a little inferno burning in this house in front of him. He picks up the rug and begins beating me with this rug. It took him a couple minutes, Doug, burned himself in the process. He carries me outside, jumps on top of me, saves wow. my life, runs back into the house, chases the dog out, chases my sisters out, calls 911. Long story made far shorter. 1987, the lifesaver of the year for the state of Missouri was not a first responder or a police officer or a veteran, not the usual suspects. The lifesaver of the year was a 17-year-old self-centered, pimple-faced, jerk hmm. brother named Jim. <laughs> Who changed? And that's wow. the call of your podcast. That's the call of our lives to continually become a better version of ourselves and and I saw it in action that day play out in front of me and a whole lot of people, but I saw it very clearly in my brother, Jim. I, I want to go deeper in the story, but I am curious, you know, fast forward all these years later, what, what's your relationship with him like now? Right. So uh, he's still a jerk. He's still my older brother. <laughs> I still love him to pieces. He, uh, you know, when I was married, I got married a couple years before he did actually. And he was my best man. And he gave wow. a talk, a toast that I have, I can almost say to you word for word, it was so powerful. Two years later, when he was on the altar, I had the honor of, of being right behind him and then giving him a toast and reminding the audience, those gathered that evening for his celebration and his wives, like that I may be the best man, but I'm only here because of his actions. And that is true. So Jim is my, far more than a brother to me. He's one of my best friends and he's certainly my hero. Yeah, so, so your brother Jim saves your life, and then obviously the story continues from there. You had to, you end up in the hospital, had to go through quite a recovery journey. Can you walk us through a little bit about what that looked like? And even you know, I've heard you share your story before. Uh, the first time you interacted with your parents uh, since the fire, uh, you, hmm. can you just run us through that whole scenario and story? Right. So I, I usually like race. And then anytime you want to say, "Dude, tell me more about your brother," or "Tell me more about your dad," or whatever, just feel free to ask. Sure. So here's the first person with my last name that I met in the hospital. His name was dad, right? So my dad was a veteran. He's a business owner. He was about 41 years old at the time. He was at the office on that Saturday morning. In that morning, Doug, I just remember laying in the hospital bed after my brother saved my life. I'm in this bed, in this emergency room by myself, looking down. Everything around me is burned. Like it's 100% burned, which is at the time, seemingly unsurvivable. So my entire body is burned and I'm scared and I'm panicked. And clearly the thought I had, as I look back on it that morning, eyes shut in that room was, oh my gosh, my dad <laughs> is going to freaking kill me when he finds <laughs> out. 
I wasn't worried about my body or recovery or what job will I get when I finally graduate university in 50 years? Like I wasn't worried about that stuff. I was worried about my dad's wrath. And I would imagine from your listeners, some of us can relate to that. When we let down yeah. someone who we loved and looked up to, and I let my dad down, man, in a mighty way. He, he told me a million times not to play with fire and gasoline. And here I do this thing. And it causes us this devastation, not only to me, but to our house. <clears throat> so that's what I'm thinking. And this is a true story. And I remember my dad's voice down the hall yelling at some nurse. And the echo coming toward me was, where is my boy, John? Where's my boy, John? And this nurse does me no favor. She brings my dad back into this room. She she should have called security on the old man. Pulls back the curtain. My father walks in. His shoulders were back. He marches over to me. He points down. And then word for word that day, Doug, he says, John, look at me when I'm talking to you. (laughs) So my family, like, that's the kiss of death, man. So I look up at my dad. And then he says, I have never been so proud of anyone in my entire life. And my little buddy today, this morning, I'm simply proud to be your father. And then dad says, I love you. I love you. I love you. And there's nothing you can do about it. We could spend a lot of time unpacking how I felt, but needless to say, my first inkling was to think that my dad had not heard what happened. Like I I imagine as a nine-year-old, no one has told my dad what happened to his house. And yet what you know as a leader and what your listeners know as leaders is, of course, he knew. And he also recognized that day what mattered and the importance of showing up as grace and compassion and love into a situation that is calling for it. So listen, we could spend up four of your podcasts talking about the recovery in hospital. It was extraordinarily arduous. It should not have happened. But I will tell you, it would not have happened had my dad not shown up with grace. There's no way. And so I, I, I credit my brother with giving me that first chance and my sisters for what they did in the front yard and then the neighbors for their support and the paramedics for being there on time. But the story ends if my dad shows up differently. So I'm just so, so grateful even to this day for my dad's love. Yeah, and I think, you know, as I hear your story, and maybe all of you share one or two more uh, people, but I just love that God used ordinary people doing somewhat ordinary things uh, to make an extraordinary difference in your life. You know, whether it was your dad's love, your brother's love. um, And then you had people throughout your recovery journey, my understanding is, in the hospital. Uh, You know, I heard you share a story of a custodian that made a huge impact on your life and um, Jack Buck, can you share maybe one or two of those stories and just the impact that, that they had in your recovery? Awesome. So back to your point around ordinary people doing extraordinary things to be part of somebody else's miracle. Like, yes, yes. So I'm not going to start with Jack Buck because he's extraordinary. He's a hall of fame, wealthy, known commodity. We expect greatness from greatness. Um, I think we don't expect it from ordinary folks and we sometimes don't expect it from ourselves. And that ultimately, man, that's like what our work, my work, our organization's work is all about. When yeah. years ago, I wrote a book called On Fire. It came out in 2016. And when the publisher first put it in front of us, like this beautiful cover, it was a picture of John O'Leary on the front of it, wearing a beautiful suit, tied just right, arms crossed, looking out at the reader like, look at me. I'm extraordinarily successful. And, and if you read this, you would be too. So I wrote back and I'm like, hey, guys, did you read the book? Because the book's not about me. And ultimately, it's not about it's not about extraordinary people. So I'm quoting you now, Doug. It's about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And when they do so faithfully, they are part of somebody else's miracle. That's the call. That's what On Fire is about. So when you look at a picture of On Fire today, what you see is not a picture of O'Leary on the front of it or back of it. On the front of the book, and I don't have a copy in front of me, but on the front of the book is, it's like uh, the, the letters, O-N, fire below it, on fire, it's made of what's called foil stock print, which means it looks like it's literally on fire, these letters, it like gives off red and orange and yellow tints. But if you look more closely, you see a reflection of the reader, or if you're holding it, a, a, a picture of Doug right in front of it. And the idea is that people, ordinary people, you and me, in other words, see within these miraculous stories themselves. 
and, and they're called to be part of that for somebody else. So I just want to be very clear, like, yes, this is a crazy story, 100% burn and all these other things you're going to hear. But we only share this, that we recognize our role, all of our roles, myself included, in being part of somebody else's miraculous story. So one of the individuals who was part of my miraculous story was a janitor named Lavelle. And, you know, Lavelle is a, just about a minimum wage employee. He, from my understanding, took a couple bus lines to get to work on time. And it's a hard job. You're working in a hospital, which is hard. You're working in a burn center, which is extraordinarily hard. You're cleaning floors and emptying trash cans. Like this is this is grueling work and you're overlooked and underappreciated for the efforts that you put out there each day. So this is part of Lavelle's story. And yet every single morning, Lavelle, as he got into work, would round with the entire team. And this is just beautiful. I, I don't usually share this story either. So it's really cool to, to brag on, on these folks. The guy who would round with Lavelle and everybody else was Dr. Vachiavajan. He was this beautiful, shortish uh, fellow born in Syria. He was burned as a little boy himself, came over to the States for care and eventually for medical school afterwards and eventually finds himself treating patients in St. Louis. And one of the members on his team was a custodial staff member named Lavelle. And he would round every day, this doctor and his entire team, and one by one, he would bring them in, have them sit on the bed and remind them that they individually were the reason why this little boy, and he would point at me, survived the night. They, and he would point at me again, were the reason why this little boy is going to survive the day. And then he would say to them, I, looking right into their eyes, thank you. Like, thank you, nurses. Thank you, CNAs. Thank you, PTs and OTs and other doctors, residents. But the first person he thanked every day was Lavelle, the first person. And I, I think there's so much to be said about the least among us aren't. We, we overlook them so often and we celebrate bold you know, tweets from the great leaders who get the other side. We, we love it when the Republicans get the Democrats. So the Democrats, man, they punch back at those Republicans. We love it when our leaders yell. And yet what I learned from Vachia Vajan, who was a true leader, was that the least among us never are. They are the most important people on the team, and he would thank them every day for their work. So, yeah, what, what a lesson he taught me as a little boy. Yeah, and in, in the book on, on fire, you have a whole section, just and you talk about being a victim versus a victor. You know, for, I don't even know, I'm just assuming that the natural person, if they went through what they went through, what you went through, they could have given up. They could have played the victim card for the rest of their life, made excuses. What do you think empowered you? I mean, clearly, you know, what you're doing now is remarkable. What do you think enabled you to, to come out of that situation and be a victor and not a victim? I think we live in a culture right now where everyone wants to feel like they can play the victim card and say, poor me, why me? How did you make that transition? And why, why are you doing what you're doing today? Well, it's, it's reason number 1738 that I don't have a picture of me on the book. Because I, I don't feel qualified to answer that question as far as like what I, what I did, because I know I'm not that good. I, I believe God is big enough to elevate the way I view my life. And the way ultimately I came to that understanding was through a conversation early on with my mom and then a, another conversation later on with my dad. Um, and so the one with my mom and there's so many to share, but I, I, I think the one I'd like to share with your listeners today is when I first got home from the hospital. <laughs> This is just such an awesome story. She's such a better parent than I am. I have four kids and I'm a third <laughs> of the parent that my mother was to me. So I got a long way to go, mom and other listeners. How old are your kids age range? 16, 14, 12, and 10. Okay. So, so we're in the throes it. of it, man. Yeah. Uh, I'm in, in knee deep and, uh, and losing losing ground in the quagmire of life, but, but grateful <laughs> for it. So when I'm... I'm nine years old. I've spent five and a half months in hospital. Should not have survived. It's an unsurvivable event. So the miracle takes. And then eventually mom and dad can take this little fellow home. They do. Our house is rebuilt. Like life is, is good. Life is good, man. We're back together as a family. Things are different. I'm going to be burned and scarred for the rest of my life. I'll probably never stand again, I thought. I'll probably never go back to school again. Clearly, I don't have fingers. They've been amputated. But I, I'm home. And that night, my mom made dinner for us all. 
it's just the six, like six kids and mom and dad and a golden retriever named Taffy at this table. No one else is around. It was a really sacred, special night for us. And the problem that I had, Doug, is I, I can't hold anything with my hands because I'm a victim. And I've been victimized by this fire, this thing that has happened to me. And so uh, my favorite sister, she knows that she'll probably listen to your podcast because she, she just she's an avid fan of, of the work we do. So Amy, shout out to my my sister and friend living in Austin, Texas, Amy O'Leary Geraci. Amy grabs a fork. She scoops up potatoes and she brings them toward my mouth. And right as the potatoes are about to enter on in, man, right as I'm about to be fed by someone else, because that's what we, when we're a victim, that's what we want. Just feed me, you know. Right before my sister feeds me, we hear the voice of my mother coming from my right. And it says, Amy, drop the fork. Wow. If John is hungry tonight, he will feed himself. Hmm. And dude, Doug, what I knew, what Amy knew, what my father and four other siblings knew, and anybody who cared to look over our shoulders and observe would know is there's no way this little boy will ever feed himself. Look at him. He's a victim. He's scarred and broken, bright red skin, open sores, no fingers. Very clear that this little boy is victimized by life. It's obvious to anybody who wants to see it, including me. And so I look at my mom with that kind of face where you're like, you know, give me a break. And then she doesn't look at me. She looks at Amy and says, Amy, like I said, if he's hungry, he's going to feed himself. And Doug, I could, <laughs> we could spend a couple hours unpacking what happens next because it quite literally took a couple hours to unpack. But by the end of that night, dinner had been ruined. A couple plates had been flipped onto the floor. Everybody else had left the room except for the dog who was still eating the remnants up. <laughs> but by the very, very, very end of the night, there's a little boy with no fingers, no chance at life, with a fork sandwiched between two broken, useless, good-for-nothing hands, scooping up potatoes on plate number three now, moving them toward his mouth, chewing and looking with great hatred toward his mother. Hmm. But the key is this. He's feeding himself. Like I'm, I'm For the first time since being burned, I'm doing something for myself. And I, I believe you're a, a faithful guy. I mean, Jesus, when he does miracles, frequently will say things like, pick up your mat, <laughs> wash your face, yeah. take action, do something, do something. And so often in life, man, we just keep waiting for someone else to pick up our mat or to wash our wow. face or to feed us that, that next bite of, of potatoes. And my bold mother, I would have never done this for myself. I would have never done it for a child because I'm not, I'm not that intrepid. But she was, she is, and that's why, uh, I don't know, that's why I just want to celebrate her today. She's just such an awesome mom. Wow. And you, you've mentioned faith several times. Uh, I'm just curious, were you always a person of faith? Uh, did that come in your journey later? What role has faith played in your whole journey? Yeah, I mean, so I, I grew up in a Christian home, and we prayed before dinner and went to a Christian school and went to church on Sundays. You checked every single box, man. And yet at that age, it was ultimately a childlike faith and the faith of my parents, if I'm real with you. But for me at age nine, it was a real faith. And when I colored a picture of Jesus in a boat and then ultimately outside of a boat, calling Peter onto the water with him, as a little boy, I believed if Jesus ever called me out of the boat, I could walk on water. Hmm. Not like, mm, I don't know, it seems to go against everything physics has taught me about life. I really believed as a child, if if the God of the universe called me out of the boat, I could walk on that water too, which was really healthy after being burned and ultimately being told that the way forward is to shut your eyes, take the hand of God and walk onto that water with him, which is what my mom and dad reminded me of daily. And so I, I believe back then that he could guide me into this journey. So I, I think that's a hugely important part for me as a little boy recovering. However, if we're honest about it. As you get older, you recognize that sometimes even with a faith, sometimes you start to sink. And even with a strong faith, sometimes the things you pray for don't come to pass. And even though you pray later on in life for me, I had a friend in high school and two in college die in automobile accidents. Well, where was God for them? And where, where's God for you when you're seeking love in your life? You've never dated. Like, so it, it, you got to at some point wrestle with that, that childlike faith. 
And that's when you have to decide whether or not it was just your parents and it was convenient when you're a kid, but now you're going to figure out your own thing or if uh, deep down it is yours. And that's a cool thing to wrestle with. So I, I've, of course, wrestled with that. I would, would imagine most of us do at some point in our lives and what a great thing that is to do. And now I'm, I'm, I've wrestled and uh, I've been proven in my life that the God of the universe remains the God of the universe, that he remains faithful, that he is who he says he is. And, and uh, <laughs> for me, it is liberating to know that I don't have to figure out how to solve the next puzzle. Like I, I know how yeah. the story ends and uh, all I have to ultimately do is to pick up my mat, say yes and shut my eyes and walk. So <laughs> it is my faith. It happens to be the same faith my parents blessed me into, but it's, it's real. It's been tested and it's been proven right. So talk to someone who's, who's listening to this going back to the, the victim uh, role. Talk to someone who's going through a difficult season. You know, maybe they just went through a divorce. Maybe they lost their job you know, whatever the situation is. And they just start saying, man, why me? Why did I get dealt this hand? I'm never going to get out of this. Yeah. What would your encouragement be to that person today? I, so the, we just talked about wrestling and I, I'm six foot tall and weigh like 150 pounds. So I'm not a good wrestler, man. Any of your listeners would knock O'Leary down and hold them on the mat for as long as they desired. <laughs> but but I, I would be okay wrestling with the sadness and the grief and the anger and go through all those appropriate emotions. I struggle frequently and uh, honestly, when I see people going through a storm, divorce, loss of a job, loss of a child, and they smile at the camera and say, you know what, it's just God's will. It's We're okay with this. I think in time, that understanding can come to pass and you can recognize how God used agony to bring you, your family and others closer to him. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that this is this stinks and this feels unfair and it is okay to be mad. It is really okay to be mad. Our God is big enough to handle that kind of wrestle match and love us afterwards. So the very first thing I would say to someone wrestling right now in their life is me too. And it's okay. And, and, uh, and I would even say this, if I can serve you as a friend, Hey dude, I'm online. Like You Google John Lear, you go to the website, my email's there. The phone number is there. Our podcast is there. Let us know how we can support you, how we can encourage you, how we can pray for or with you, what we can do to support you along the journey. So uh, I would encourage people to be okay with that wrestle match, to not try to do it by themselves, and then to ask themselves as they continue the journey forward, what can that new vision look like? How can that adversity, a job loss, the loss of a relationship that was dear to you, Ultimately, ultimately be used to draw you in a direction that you may not have chosen previously. And, and when we begin to cast a new vision based upon the realities of our life today, not on the life we wish we had had a year ago, 30 years ago, before I got burned, before God amputated my fingers. No, the life I have today. That's when ultimately we can live not only into the fullness of our lives, but ultimately the fullness that God desired for our lives. In the, in the book, you talk about life being sacred. I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you have a near-death experience, um, do you find yourself, is it easy for you to to count life as sacred and just be grateful for every day? Or is, is that still a challenge for you? I'm just curious how what your view is on gratitude. It's kind of a yes and. So I'm guilty. Like almost all of us have taken things for granted, including sure. breath and heart heartbeats and everything else that so often we just ignore because, oh, of course, we have life today. So uh, what I'm blessed to have experienced is not only the hardship of a near-death experience and then the agony coming through that, not only during five months, but years of recovery and therapy and surgery. The other piece, Doug, that I seldom share, even in the book on fire, I don't think I write about it. <clears throat> and I don't talk about it often because I don't find it to be uh, super relevant to audiences. But every time I look in the mirror, I'm reminded of it. Every single time when I look in the mirror and I recognize most of your listeners are hearing not seeing me today, but I'm burned from my neck to my toes, which means scarred and damaged and broken and quotes less than. But I also experience like wounds and sores. So every single day of my life, when I look in the mirror, I not only see John O'Leary staring back at that reflection, I recognize how broken the reflection is. 
which either will drive you to ask the question, why me as a victim? Or here's the, here's the flip. Or to ask the question, why me? That's how, how did I survive that? How am I still here? Why did my wife see something beautiful in this? Why do my kids want to take this damaged hand and hold my hand when we drive to school? Why, why do I have the honor of traveling around the world as a speaker? Why do I have the, the blessing of still being able to look up to? And I mean that to my mom and my dad, to have a relationship with my brother, who's my hero, four sisters, involvement and engagement in the community. I'm healthy. They may not always look like it, but I'm healthy. So today, when when you ask about John, is it a was it something you received as a kid or do you make the daily choice? And the answer is like, yes, both, yeah. both. It was something I received as a child and something I receive every time I look in the mirror. And my encouragement for our listeners is to, to recognize how unlikely it is for you to have survived anything you've survived in your life, not just a fire or the mm. car accident, or when you're you know, playing up on the roof, throwing the aerobi when you were 11 years old and you, you left it. Like, no, no, not just that stuff. The likelihood of you being born, I, I think the math plays out like this. If you look at your mother's, we won't go through all the biology right now, Doug, but if you want later on, we can do an after hours session with Doug. <laughs> but if you look at the biology your mother brought to the table and the biology your father brought to the table, the likelihood of you coming out of that union, just biology-wise, ignoring the miracle of your soul, but just biology is less than one in 400 trillion. Wow. So that's not that's a million with a T. You have a less biological likelihood of being born for, to your mom and dad than less than one in 400 trillion. And then we bark about our Starbucks being too hot or too cold or the <laughs> flight. You get a jumbo jet in the, in the air and you're like, dude, it's 15 minutes late to air. This airline <laughs> sucks. Okay, really? Your life is a gift. Breathe that one in, savor that. And you're about to experience another gift. Hop on a big old jumbo jet and fly from Pitt to, to Chicago safely. It's a shocking blessing. And many of us, if we aren't careful, we wish it away and we miss it. So rather than waiting to board the next flight or hit up the next vacation spot, dude, just put the podcast on pause, look in the mirror and say, God, wow, look what you designed perfectly. Look what you wove together, man. I, I haven't earned this. I don't know how it came to pass, but I'm grateful for it. Uh, you have a, a quote in the book, uh, I think it's by Henry Nowen. It says, in our woundedness we can become sources of life for others, which I love. And, and you've clearly done that with yeah. your life. Can you walk us through that journey of when did you decide to actually start sharing this story? And you know, how did that whole world take off for you as far as speaking, writing, and going around the world, inspiring people? So it's beautiful. You bring that up. I have, I've been blessed. I've spoken a couple thousand times now around the world. So that's a lot of audiences, a lot of clients, I only keep a couple trophies, if that's what you want to call them, whether it's plaques or hmm. glass things or pens or, you know, those types of stuff. One of the trophies I have, and there's only like four in the entire office, but one of the trophies right behind me is what's called a K-bar. And it's a Marine's favorite tool. It is what they use in combat if it's hand-to-hand. -hand. It's what they use to open up their, their meals. It's what they open if you use frequently to dig a trench if those soils really hard. And this K-bar is in a glass box up above. It has my name on it. And it's given to me by a group of wounded warriors who I've been blessed to serve probably 40 different times now. Hmm. And so it has like some cool little expressions from them below my name, thanking me for the work we do. Right below that K-bar, I have a quote from Henry Nowen, the one you just hmm. referenced. Wow. Because I recognize why would a group of tough, awesome masculine, beautiful, brilliant Marines welcome a skinny, fingerless, scarred nobody into their presence. And, and then not only welcome them in, why would they love them afterwards? How's that even possible? Like, how does that, how do those two jive? I don't have war experience. I don't know what it's like to be wounded. I've never lost a guy in a, a foxhole that I love. I've never been through that. So what is it? And it is that woundedness piece. 
So your quote's beautiful. Nouwen is a brilliant thinker. I love that K-bar. Now you've uh, got a little bit of access to the Illyria office. So that's what's going on behind me in that back right corner. When did that begin? It began in two ways. Uh, I was in a church service actually on a Sunday morning and a pastor was preaching about talents. And um, I don't know, a couple hundred people in church, but it looked like he was staring at me. <laughs> and he was saying, ultimately, if you've got five talents, multiply. If you've got three, multiply. And O'Leary, dude, I'm looking at you now. Those of us who feel as if they have one, multiply. So I'm 27 years old. I'd never shared with anybody my story because I felt as if it was not a story worthy of being shared. Because why would you ever tell anybody about a, a horrible event in your life? Like what good can come out of, out of woundedness? To use that word you used a moment ago. So that was convicting to have... Um, to be in church and to be realized, even though you feel as if you only have one, do something, man. Pick up the mat. Do something mm. with the one you've got. You know, in God's timing, which is always perfect, even if we wish it wasn't, two days later, I'm at work and my phone rings and a little girl scout, if you read On Fire, you probably heard this story or read it, but a little girl scout called and said, Mr. O'Leary. So I remember responding, oh, I think you want my dad. And she said, no, Miss, Mr. O'Leary, before you hang up, Mr. O'Leary, dad, your dad gave me your number. Would you, would you share your story of being burned as a little boy with our group? So Doug, I'd never shared that story of being burned with anybody in my entire life. But on the heels of being called to, to do more, more with my one talent, it's only one, but I guess I could apply that to a group of one group. And I, I could apply that talent one time. So I practiced the speech for literally 40 hours, delivered it. It was a 10-minute presentation to three Girl Scouts. It was brutal. It went about as well as you might expect, <laughs> which is to say horribly. But one of them was moved enough that she told her dad, and he was a, a Rotarian, and he called me and said, Hey, John, I heard what you did for the girls today. Would, would you do that for a club that I'm part of? So I said, Sure, sure. And then one of those guys was in Qantas. And then one of those guys ran a small bank. This is the way the, the gospel is always spread. It's the way goodness has always spread. It's the way evil has always spread too. It's one by one. One positive act, one evil act at a time. One truth, one lie at a time. It's always how the world has been changed. I think we underestimate our ability to influence change through our lives, negatively or positively. Choose wisely. Choose very wisely. You saw an example in Buffalo recently of what evil looks like. It just It's built on the heels of one lie. And then one lie and then one more lie behind. Like that's all it takes mm. to change the world negatively. The awesome part though, our calling through your podcast, it can also change positively through our lives. Yeah. And so I, I was called into this profession seemingly very accidentally, but through God's perfect timing. Yeah. So um, before we dive in the lightning round, I would love to just hear a little bit more about what you've learned. You, you've spoken all over the world. You write. We have a lot of people that are aspiring authors and aspiring speakers. What have you learned just about public speaking and, and that whole business or ministry per se? I, I like the word ministry. That's a very cool way to look at it because many times people approach me and they say, John, I want to become a speaker. I'm really good at it. I've got a strong stage presence. I've got an awesome bang up story. I never dangle prepositions. I am. I just think <laughs> I'm the best. And my mother told me that. <laughs> and then you ask like, well, what's the reason? I'm like, well, I just know. And it's I, I, I. Well, ministry is mm. not at all about I. It's more like, dude, I don't, I really don't think I'm qualified for this. I've got an ugly face. It's more of a radio face if I'm being real with you about it. And I dangle prepositions and, that that's when you recognize it, dude. So it's not about you. You're saying, Doug, it's about ultimately the call. Okay, awesome. Now we can talk about it. So the, the very first thing I would say about the ministry of speaking or podcasting or writing or knocking on doors and trying to sell anything in life is it ought to ultimately not be about you, but about the audience member that you're in front of. And part of the reason I think that we've become as successful in our careers, we have a couple thousand audiences, 49 states, dozens of countries, millions of people is because every time O'Leary takes the stage or the team members in this office help him do that, none of it is motivated by what we get out of it. So good. We don't look for followers. We, we don't chase cash. We track that stuff, absolutely. But none of it is done for what we get. It's always about how do we influence positively the lives of those we, are have, we have the honor of being in front of next 
whether three Girl Scouts or 30,000 in an auditorium? How do, how do we serve them well? So if that's the way you're coming at this thing, then everything you do is you build out the slide deck or you have the pre-calls or you get ready to go on stage ought to be about, Lord, how do you want to use me for this group today? How do you, how do you, how, how can I be used? And if that's really how you're approaching this, so many of uh, the other pieces that you might ask around speaking, they're going to just naturally fall into place, which means yeah, you probably should get a coach on how to structure content more effectively. You, you probably should practice a lot, but again, it's not practicing for you. So you look good. It's practicing because you have one moment in time in front of a broken group of people, three Girl Scouts or 30,000, and they're longing for hope. And they're struggling mm. with emotional health challenges. And they're dealing with social injustices and equalities and difficulties in their families. They're going through divorce, whatever. And then you have an opportunity for 10 minutes or one hour to love them well. If that's the call, then you better treat it seriously. So there's a lot of pre-work that goes into getting ready for that hour on stage. But all of that pre-work got to be done in order to make that hour on stage pro- profoundly powerful for the audience lucky enough to hear your voice. Yeah, you, you probably just answered this, but I'm always curious. You know, I, I know you've spent time with Dave Ramsey and his organization. And, you know, the question always for Dave would be, you know, how do you share the same message over and over again? three hours a day for 30 plus years. And, you know, for you, I don't know how old you are, but you've been sharing the story since you were sell 27. Yeah, I'll, I'll be Dave. From- what? Dave, Dave would just say, sell the truck, sell the truck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sell the truck. Uh, is that what keeps you, you, uh, I guess I'm just curious. Is that what keeps your story fresh as you've shared it? I have a story as well. And, you know, I share it all the time. It's just, okay, here we go again. Is, is, is this just simply remembering people were longing for hope? If I show up and share my story today, I can invoke hope in those people. Yeah. Okay. That was my question. So, and it's, <laughs> so. yes, it's, it's a beautiful question and it's actually kind of a difficult thing to do. And I would say utterly impossible. If Dave Ramsey is telling listeners 30 years of, of the same call, Dave, I got a dad, Dodge Ram that I love. Uh, we're in debt. So then he responds, sell the truck. Like how many times can you have the same call before you're like, dude, I'm done with this. What motivates Dave, what motivates all missionaries, what motivates you, Doug, what motivates me is not how do I get more listeners? It's how do I make sure the listeners I have, the viewers I have, the audience that I have are inspired to take the next right step forward in, in their lives. And so years ago for me, what I what I created to make sure that I did my work, I prepared better. I grew a bigger audience. We met them in different ways through books and podcasts and coaching series and all the stuff we've done. How do you do that? How do you stay authentic and all in every day when it's the same thing, dude? Same thing. So here's my mission statement for life. My mission statement. The reason I choose to tell people to sell their truck or go on the next flight or get on the next stage or hop on the next podcast. John O'Leary chooses to thrive. So that's the answer. You want to answer the question, I choose to thrive. And here's mine. I choose to thrive because God demands it. My family deserves it. The world is starved for it. Let's roll. No excuses. So I choose to thrive. Again, this every stage, big and small, seen and unseen, because God demands it. My family deserves it. The world is starved for it. Let's roll. No excuses. No excuses. So what I am motivated by is that expression of truth coming into an audience. And then what I recognize as you do, as Dave does, is these audience members are clamoring and longing for something that you can share with them. And many of them, if, if we're real about it, well, what we, here's what we know. 66% of us feel as if we're isolated. A little bit more than that feels as if they have no one in their life to share truth with. 1.4 million Americans last year attempted suicide. Jeez. So the game you and I play is life and death. Like this isn't like, I wonder if I can get paid more next. No, no, no. People in this room are wondering, should I even be alive tomorrow? Is my life worthy? Is my child, like, how do I do this thing well? So I don't think this is a joke. And I don't view it as a speech or a podcast or a book. I view it as mission work. And I take that very seriously, as I know you do as well. 
Yeah, and you just shot a whole shot of adrenaline in my arm to get fired up about the work again. Uh, so thank you for that. And speaking of let's roll, uh, with the time we have left, I want to roll into the uh, the lightning round. And so just a bunch of fun questions I always ask. And the first one is, what is the best advice you've ever received and who gave it to you? Hmm. Gosh, there's so many answers to that. Two, two answers come to mind very quickly. The first from my mom, she had a a little poster hanging up in the kitchen growing up. And it said, this too shall pass. <laughs> and uh, that's a very good thing to be reminded of when you are on the big stage and Dave Rams is introducing you to name drop for a moment, or you got the following or you have status or whatever the things are that you know, may mean you are all that. It's important to have someone whispering over your shoulder. This too shall pass, dude. Mm-hmm. Don't get a big head. Don't miss the miracle of this moment. Don't let the days go with these little children that you have the honor of raising. Don't miss anything. This too shall pass. But she hung not only for those moments, she also hung it for the negative moments. The moments when our house would burn down and her little boy would come within an inch of losing his life. This too shall pass. She hung it for when we had a second house fire years later. She hung it for when my father was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and they lost everything financially. As difficult or as beautiful as life might get in front of her, what she knew she needed the reminder of, this too shall pass. So then hold on to the things that don't pass away. Okay, that's that's a really key lesson for me to learn as a little boy growing up and as a man today. The second thing to learn from them growing up, my dad's lesson he taught me. Uh, I'll go through the story very quickly. But what he said to me when I was really struggling with the question of why me? Why me? It's so, so unfair. He leaned into my little wheelchair even closer and he said to me, John, darn it, this thing has happened to you. And if you want to be a victim to it for the rest of your life, no one's ever going to blame you because you've been to the bottom of the well. You've been abused. You've been you've experienced trauma. You've gone through physical agony and you're always going to live there. So if you want to be a victim, have at it. And then he said, or you can be a victor. You can choose, John, to recognize what God is using this story for. And then every room we roll you into, or eventually when you rise from that wheelchair, every room you walk into, people will look up to you in awe. Not at what you have done in your life, but ultimately what they might do in theirs. And then he said to me, victim or victor, John, your choice. And Doug, that was a conversation that my father had with me 35 years ago that I remember as if it happened earlier this morning. Victim or victor, John, your choice. And so that that those are two great monikers. Victim or victor, yeah. your choice. This too shall pass. This is certainly not a lightning round question, but I think I have to ask it just based on your whole story. It sounds like you have phenomenal parents uh, raising six kids. It sounds like obviously not perfect, but made a huge impact on your life. You're raising four teenagers. You're in the thick of it. I'm raising, I have three little ones. We're going for four. What advice do you have for me as a, as a parent raising kids? Awesome. (laughs) So we'll start the next podcast with that question because we'll spend (laughs) an hour unpacking it together as you and I, as I don't dictate how to do it, but share a little bit of what I've learned. I think the more you can teach a lot more less, a lot less with words and a lot more with your action. Mm. That's key. The more we can love them the way a grandparent loves their child, the way Jesus might love a child. Parents get so stuck up in test scores being on the eight. What do you mean? Johnny missed that. He's on the B team. That's not fair. Like he's a great shortstop. All this nonsense. It is utter nonsense and off air. I'll use a far firmer word. It's ridiculous though. So, so often parents care about the stuff that does not matter in iota, not even a little bit, not even a little bit. What grandparents recognize is the stuff that matters. And what Jesus Christ recognized is the stuff that matters. And when he makes the call, let the children come to me. He's not making the call that if you are under the age of 11, let Doug's children come to me. He's inviting Doug's parents and Doug and Doug's adult listeners to get over themselves, to set ego aside and to step open-mindedly and open-heartedly back to the well to experience again what really matters in life. And the more we experience what matters in life along with our children in a place of love and truth, but also accountability and conviction, 
the more exceptional our, our, our little ones will be as they move forward into their lives. So what I would encourage all of us to do, myself included, is, <laughs> in fact, I saw Hamilton recently, talk yes. less, smile more. <laughs> From Aaron, Aaron Burr. Burr. Yes. Aaron Burr today. Talk less, smile more. Smile, smile more. Love, love, love. Were you a fan of the Ham- of Hamilton? No, man. I never. I have heard of it, of course, for years. I hadn't heard a single song before my wife and I went down a couple weeks back. And, uh, dude, I, I can't get it out of my head now. Every song just yes. keeps rolling through, in particular the one where they move uptown. Yep. And they work, move through the unimaginable, the unimaginable yeah. of losing a child so and powerful. losing a marriage into the unimaginable of coming back together and offering forgiveness in the midst of the storm. The unimaginable. Yeah, that, that whole soundtrack is basically all I've listened to for the past three or four years, so uh, I can't get enough. Uh, <laughs> well, we're just about out of time. I'd love to continue for another hour or two, but as we close, any any last words you want to leave with leaders today? Oh, gosh. I would remind them that their life matters. I would remind them that frequently the things they don't, that the things they think matter, don't. I would remind mm-hmm. them to view your life in the way you ultimately would want to view it at the dying days. And that's frequently said, but infrequently lived out. So how do you truly want to be remembered? And then rather than waiting for it, do it now. Like just start living like that now, like live like that now. And if, if you want to learn more about the work we do or our podcast or our channel, you can visit me online at johnolearyinspires.com. So it's johnolearyinspires.com. There's my email there, our phone numbers there. There's a 21-day free challenge there. It's like a hope spark challenge. Our podcast is there. Free resource after free resource to love people. So if ever I can be an encouragement beyond your amazing episode today, just let me know. Like I'm I'm in. I'm I'm with you through God's grace and because people showed up for me. So I, I want to show up, Doug, for others. So go to johnolearyinspires.com to learn more. Yeah, well, and John, thank you so much for showing up for me today and for everyone who will listen to this podcast. I know this inspired me and fired me up, and I'm sure everyone that listens will say the same. And we'll include links to everything that you shared in the show notes as well. So make sure you check out John. So thanks again. Well, hey, Leader, thank you so much for listening to my conversation with John. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can find ways to connect with him and links to everything that we discussed in the show notes at l3leadership.org forward slash 323. And Leader, as always, I want to challenge you that if you want to 10x your growth this year, then you really need to either launch or join an L3 Leadership Mastermind Group. Mastermind groups have been the greatest source of growth in my life over the last seven years. If you're unfamiliar with them, they're just groups of six to 12 leaders that meet together for at least one year in order to help each other grow, hold each other accountable, and to do life together. If you're interested in learning more about masterminds, go to l3leadership.org forward slash masterminds. And as always, I like to end every episode with a quote. And today I'll quote Dave Ramsey, who said this. He said, if you don't have something in your career that you're aiming at, you'll stall out and your income will never increase. Start dreaming again. Start to say, when I'm X years old, this is exactly who I want to be. And when you have a clear vision of who you want to be, then figure out what you need to get there. Guys, get fired up about where you are in life. Get fired up about where you're getting to, where you're wanting to go and then figure out the price and then pay it. I hope this episode encouraged you. I hope it inspired you. And as always, know that Laura and I love you. We believe in you. And remember, don't quit. The world desperately needs your leadership. We'll talk to you next episode.